here. Is it true they leave in show business in a year? No. Not as far as we know, unless we get shots or something. I do believe if you dream about a relative who's crossed over, then that is them saying hi. I really do think that. Every time he smells human, like a fire from a far off way, and you know, he'll, uh, he'll just get really disgusted and hide. And he just tries to stay away from people. I can relate to that. <laughs> hey, cool people. Strange Music Stories back again after a very long hiatus with another unusual instance in rock history for you. This is the fourth episode on this podcast channel. I'm your host, Chris. And man, there's no band stranger than the one I'm going to be talking about in this episode. The band I'm referring to is none other than the Sex Pistols. Believe me, this is going to be a killer story. <laughs> For those that get that reference, I'm sure some will. Anyway, here we go. In the last podcast, I discussed the band Great White and in some detail how productive they were with consecutively putting out new hit albums. This certainly was not the case for the Sex Pistols. They didn't release hit album after hit album. In fact, they only released one studio album. It's interesting because we have one band, as already mentioned, that has released around eight hit albums. And then on the other hand, we have the Sex Pistols, which only released one and still managed to create a colossal legacy. The question I'm sure for that one person who has never heard of them is how? So bear that in mind for the future. But I'm getting well ahead of myself now. Let me start from the beginning of the band's conception. Steve Jones would meet Paul Cook as children since they both grew up in the working class area of Shepherd's Bush, London, United Kingdom. They lived right around the corner from each other and started socializing at this experimental fashion boutique store owned by Malcolm McLaren and Vivian Westwood. The retail store sold more avant-garde Teddy Boy inspired clothing. Quick side note. Teddy Boy fashion was a 1950s British clothing style that had its own subculture. Young men would dress up as dandies or wealthy individuals, and these people were not necessarily wealthy either for that matter. Just a fun little fact. Anyway, moving on. The store opened in November of 1971 and was located on King's Road in Chelsea, London. It was originally named Let It Rock, but then McLaren and Westwood changed it to too Fast to Live, Too Young to Die in 1972. With the changed store name, they also added a more biker chic themed style of clothing, which apparently originated from Marlon Brando in such movies as 1953's The Wild One. Cook and Jones also hung out in another clothing store, also located on King's Road, that mimicked McLaren's style of clothing and his store in general. It was named Acme Attractions. I'm jumping way ahead in the narrative now, but supposedly the owners John Criven and Steph Rayner won such competition with McLaren that in 1976 they created a band named Chelsea, and it was solely designed to compete with McLaren's band The Sex Pistols. This is a little digression, and I'm not going to talk about it much further, but sounds like an interesting topic to look up for those that are curious. Okay, back to the original narrative now. Wally Nightingale was another friend of Jones and Cook, and he decided that they should create a rock band together. So, in 1972, they did. Cook was on drums, Jones did the vocals, and Nightingale played the guitar. They named the band The Strand after Roxy's music song, Do the Strand. There were some other members who were part of the early incarnation and would be removed very shortly. Steve Hayes on bass, then later Del Noonan replaced him, and shortly the band even had an organist named Jim Mackin. 
Apparently, there was even a Congo player by the name of Cecile, but this too would not last very long either. Now, here's an interesting fact. If you're wondering how these high school kids from working-class families had the money to afford drums, guitars, amplifiers, and all the musical equipment necessary to create a rock band, you will quickly learn that they, in fact, did not have the money and through Jones's thieving klepto ways at that time, stole the equipment they needed to begin the band. This brings to mind that cliche, good artists copy, great artists steal, taken quite literally. (laughs) They even stole microphones from David Bowie around the time he was finishing up his Ziggy Stardust tour, and that ended on July 3rd, 1973, at the Hammersmith Odeon. In 1974, they managed to snag a professional rehearsal space at Riverside Studios, provided by Willie Nightingale's father. Also in 1974, McLaren and Westwood changed their flamboyant clothing store name yet again to being called simply Sex. And to no one's great surprise, the store stopped selling flashy teddy boy clothing in favor of S&M anti-fashion attire and merchandise, which would epitomize the style of the punk movement. Shortly after McLaren changed the store to this newfound identity, he temporarily relocated to New York. Bassist Del Noonan got canned since he was apparently skipping out on rehearsals. He was replaced in late 1974 by an art student who was working as a shop assistant one day a week at the very same clothing store that is now named Sex. The student's name was Glenn Matlock. Shortly after he joined, the band played their first show in early 1975 at a birthday party for one of Paul Cook's friends. The lineup at that time consisted of Jones on vocals, Matlock on bass, Cook on drums, and Nightingale on guitar. Apparently, they were horrible and demonstrated that they were very inexperienced still. Also around this point as well, they renamed the band to the Swankers. Malcolm McLaren returned to England in the summer of 1975, and after Steve Jones requested many times for him to be the band manager, he finally conceded. There was one caveat, however, for him to agree, and it would require Jones and Cook to get rid of Wally Nightingale. Malcolm apparently didn't feel he had the appropriate roughness or edginess to fit in with the band's overall aesthetic. They agreed, and Wally got sacked. There was also another change that occurred at the same time as well. Jones didn't want to be the lead singer of the band anymore, and decided to take over Nightingale's role as the guitarist. Supposedly, Nightingale showed up to rehearsal as usual, and he saw Jones wearing guitar as he entered the studio. This is how he found out he was fired from the band. Also, quick side note. Steve Jones had been teaching himself to play the guitar for several months prior to Nightingale's dismissal. Nightingale was quoted for saying at this instance, quote, I was so gutted that I didn't say anything. I was almost in tears, unquote. Apparently, Nightingale's life didn't get too much better from this point either. He tried to continue a career in pop music in the 1980s, but unfortunately, he wasn't able to land a record deal with his new band, Key West. He started developing a drug addiction, which led to an arrest, then to his eventually untimely demise, which was on May 6, 1996. This is crazy. We have another instance where the band founder is fired from their own project. I mean, it was his idea to make the whole damn thing. It's also f***ed up they got rid of Nightingale, considering it was through him or his dad they were able to have their own rehearsal space to begin with. Wally even apparently contributed a lot when it came to creating the only two original songs they had at that time, since they were mostly just doing covers of other bands. The names of the two songs he helped create were Scarface and Did You Know Wrong. Did You Know Wrong was released commercially with lyrical changes as their second single, God Save the Queen. By the way, the other case of a founding member being fired from their own project was Brian Jones of the Rolling Stones. 
which got discussed in the first episode. All right, carrying on. The band was renamed QT Jones and his Sex Pistols since Steve Jones apparently tried singing while playing the guitar, which is kind of funny because I thought he picked up the guitar so he wouldn't have to sing. Oh, well, whatever. Malcolm McLaren apparently was pretty adamant about his disapproval of this, so the band still needed to find a new frontman. They also changed the band name again to simply The Sex Pistols, which was used also as partial advertising for Malcolm's clothing store, Sex. There was an 18-year-old teen named John Lydon who would hang out at McLaren's shop. He had no vocal training at all or even any future prospects of being a rock singer. Even still, he was considered as a potential frontman for the Pistols based on his outlandish appearance, clothing, and style. The audition pretty much consisted of him singing Alice Cooper's song entitled I'm 18 over the shop jukebox. And then, subsequently, he joined the band in August 1975. Lydon also was given an alias by Steve Jones, which would stick, and he was now referred to as Johnny Rotten. Apparently, John was coined this for his poor dental hygiene. Yep, already getting a mental image of standing across the street from this guy and still smelling his foul breath. Pretty goddamn gross. With this new lineup, Glenn Matlock, who studied at St. Martin's College, got the band their first little gig together at his school on November 6, 1975. Their performance was cited as being very poor musically, and at the end of their set, they got into a physical altercation with the other band they were opening for, named Bazooka Joe. Apparently, the brawl occurred as a result of the pistols smashing and breaking their musical gear. <laughs> that is so screwed up. Their fan base started growing as the kids took notice of their provocative clothing, which was obviously supplied by McLaren and Westwood Shop Sex, as already mentioned. In addition, McLaren and Westwood would be described as political agitators somewhat, and they seem to identify with the Situationists. Quick tangent on the ideology. The Situationists were a leftist type of political party that was formed in 1957. To paint very broad strokes, the party followed and expanded on Marxism. It also borrowed different elements from other movements of the 20th century, including the Dada movement, surrealism, cubism, and Marinetti's futurism. They also identified with anarchism, and more specifically with the creed of a once prominent Spanish anarchist by the name of Benav Ventura Duruti. Duruti apparently had a big hand in the 1936 Spanish Revolution. He also lived from 1896 and then died in the year of the revolution, which was again 1936. Man, never would have guessed in discussing the sex pistols that this would turn into an art history class, but I guess that's just how zany their past is. That being said, I'm not going to discuss all these individual movements. The topics are just way too vast. If anyone is curious, check it out. It's very intriguing stuff. Okay, so the Sex Pistols got their first official gig on February 12, 1976, opening for Eddie and the Hot Rods at the legendary London club named Marquee. Fun fact, many, and I mean many, famous acts have played at this venue between 1964 and before it closed in 1996. I believe it closed at a different location. Um, I'm not sure, but that's what I think I saw. Anyway, Eddie and the Hot Rods were another punk band formed in 1975. Unfortunately, the show they shared with the Pistols did not go well, specifically for them, since the Pistols didn't learn the lesson from the past and decided again to break the headliners' instruments and musical equipment. Steve Jones was famously quoted for saying in an article after the show, quote, Actually, we're not into music. We're into chaos, unquote. Pretty badass quip, actually, in my opinion. 
Well, in any event, I'm guessing this gig didn't impact Eddie and the Hot Rods very much because they went on to be a commercial success in 1977 with their hit song, Do Anything You Want to Do. Probably not the best title for these days, if you know what I mean. Anyway, the Sex Pistols played another gig in London at the 100 Club and opened for a band named 101ers, which just so happened to have, you guessed it, Joe Sturmer. This was also apparently before he went on to join The Clash. In seeing the Sex Pistols, Strummer admitted to himself that punk rock music was, in fact, the future. The Pistols played another show at a club called The Nashville, and yet again another fight broke out with a different band at this very same gig. The incident resulted in them being both banned from The Nashville and The Marquee. Man, what a hooligans. On August 28, 1976, the Sex Pistols got a chance to play their new original song, Anarchy in the UK, on television as a guest musical act on So It Goes with Tony Wilson. Hmm, wondering if the show's name was based on that same Slaughterhouse-Five catchphrase. Anyway, whatever. The band finally got signed to EMI on October 8th, 1976, and on November 26th, 1976, they officially released that very same debut single song, Anarchy in the UK, which was overseen by their sound engineer, Dave Goodman. It's very apparent in looking at the lyrics that John Lydon used a lot of Westwood and Jamie Reed's leftist ideology when writing the song, as this can be easily observed while listening to it. It completely oozes nihilism. Quick side note on Jamie Reed. Jamie Reed was a college friend of McLaren's and also aligned himself with similar political views as Malcolm. Reed was also an artist and did famous graphic designs for the Sex Pistols. Almost everyone agrees his work for the Pistols defined the punk movement. Anyway, that was just a little tidbit on him. Now, if you were imagining the scandals were slowing down with the band, you'd be very mistaken. In fact, <laughs> they're just getting started. There is one huge shocker which probably everyone and their mother knows about, but let me get through their dense history before touching upon that event. So yes, no surprise, another scandal occurred on December 1st, 1976, when the band was invited to be interviewed on Thames Television's Today program, hosted by Bill Grundy. Trouble started when Jones said, quote, we spent it, unquote, when referring to the money, EMI advanced them, supposedly. And John Lydon also apparently said, quote, shit, unquote. From here, things escalate further when Grundy made an advance on Susie Sue after she said, quote, I've always wanted to meet you, unquote. And Grundy responded by saying, quote, did you really, question mark. We'll meet afterwards, shall we, unquote. At this point, Steve Jones got pretty pissed and the following exchange occurred, quote, Jones, you dirty sod, you dirty old man, Grundy. Well, keep going, chief, keep going. Go on, you got another five seconds. Say something outrageous. Jones, you dirty bastard. Grundy, go on again. Jones, you dirty f Grundy, what a clever boy. Jones, what a fing rotter. Unquote. This footage can be found very easily on YouTube, actually. Check it out, it's pretty goddamn hilarious. Anyway, this on air conflict actually gained the band further recognition and caused Grundy to eventually lose his show and his hosting career entirely. It even brought punk genre into the limelight. The Daily Mirror, an English tabloid founded in 1903, famously titled the headline of the event, The Filth and the Fury, which was actually used as a title for a documentary about them in the year 2000. 
From this point onwards, we have concrete truth that you don't have to be liked by anyone to be an astounding success. In fact, if anyone proves that, it's this band. Anyway, so they staged a tour called the Anarchy Tour across the United Kingdom, which I'm sure the elites just loved. Sarcasm much. They didn't. In fact, of the 20-some-odd gigs that were scheduled, only several took place. The tour had supporting acts of one such familiar face in that of Joe Strummer and his current band now, The Clash. They also had a New York-based band named The Heartbreakers, not to be confused with Tom Petty's band, Rip. Mobs of people started protesting the Sex Pistols shows for this tour, and even EMI record-packing workers started boycotting them by not packing their single. An English politician by the name of Bernard Brooke Partridge was quoted for saying, quote, Most of these groups will be vastly improved by sudden death. The worst of the punk groups, I suppose, currently are the Sex Pistols. They're unbelievably nauseating. They are the antithesis of humankind. I'd like to see somebody dig a very, very large, exceedingly deep hole and drop the whole bloody lot down it. Unquote. Ooh, shots fired. Sounds like the man made a new BFF. As a result of the backlash from all of the negativity revolving around the band, EMI released them from their contract shortly after the Anarchy Tour on January 27, 1977. Glenn Matlock also had been kicked out of the band on February 28, 1977, according to Malcolm McLaren. Also, according to McLaren, the reason he got kicked out was because <laughs> he said, quote, he liked the Beatles, unquote. John Lydon was also quoted for saying in the 2000 documentary, The Filth and the Fury, about Madlock, quote, and then there's Glenn wolfling on about nice things like the Beatles, unquote. Even Steve Jones was quoted for saying, quote, he, referring to Glenn, was a good writer, but he didn't look like a sex pistol, and he was always washing his feet. His mom didn't like the songs, unquote. Pretty sure I heard an interview from Jones where he was actually complaining that Glenn was literally always washing his feet in the sink of every hotel room they stayed at. <laughs> That's pretty funny. Anyway, by most accounts, the parting of the ways was actually a mutual agreement. There was tension mounting between Lydon and Matlock, and apparently the final straw to break the camel's back was when the band was working on their second single, God Save the Queen. Supposedly, Matlock hated Lydon's lyrics so much he decided he didn't want to be a part of the project anymore. Which was fine, because John had someone else in mind to fill Glenn's shoes for the bass anyway. Enter Sid Vicious. Sid, or John Beverly, was formerly known as John Simon Ritchie. He also was John Lennon's very close friend, and considered himself the ultimate Sex Pistols fan. Vicious got the name Sid actually from Lydon after Lydon's pet hamster, whose name was also Sid, bit him. He got the name Vicious from Lydon too, after they were in a brawl with other people together at a club. So that's how he got the full alias of Sid Vicious. He was also a former drummer for two other punk bands, Susie and the Banshees and the Flowers of Romance. Funny story, actually. When the Pistols were first looking for a lead singer, Westward told McLaren that they should get, quote, the guy called John, who came to the store a couple of times, unquote, to be the lead singer for the band. Turns out she was referring to John Beverly, or Sid, and not John Lydon. Basically, Lydon being the lead singer was a complete freak accident. Vicious also claimed that he invented this funny punk-style dancing called pogo dancing. Not sure if that's completely true, but he claimed it nonetheless. If you go to YouTube, there's actually a funny video of Debbie Harry from Blondie explaining pogo dancing with a pogo stick. It's actually quite hilarious. You should check it out. 
Another very interesting fact about Sid Vicious is, you guessed it, he had literally zero playing experience with the bass or any other musical instrument besides the drums. McLaren and the band thought his look was so perfect for them in spite of his lack of musical training that they literally didn't give a damn. <laughs> like, we have thoughts on this. It's so funny how this band was so anti-everything status quo that even recruiting a member who doesn't have any musical training whatsoever would be deemed somewhat of an asset to them. It's hilarious. Very rebellious and different for that time, I'm sure. Anyway... An incident occurred, no surprise, with Vicious at the 100 Club, where he apparently threw a glass at the punk band The Damned. It broke, and Charts hit a girl, blinding her in one eye. Wow, how Mark Wahlberg of him. <laughs> I'm sorry, it's not funny. Anyway, moving on. For that incident, he obviously served some time, and The 100 Club from that point onwards would not allow any punk bands to play there ever again. And as we already can see at this point, very shortly after Sid Vicious joined the Sex Pistols, things started to spiral out of control for him. Enter Nancy Spudgeon. Sid met Nancy Spudgeon in 1977. She was a drug addict and apparently solicited sex in New York City to feed her addiction. Supposedly, Spudgeon was the one who introduced Vicious to heroin in the first place. John Lennon wrote, quote, We did everything to get rid of Nancy. She was killing him. I was absolutely convinced this girl was a slow suicide mission. Only, she didn't want to go alone. She wanted to take Sid with her. She was so utterly f***ed up and evil, unquote. Wow, sounds like John <laughs> kind of had a crush on her. Just kidding. Moving on. On March 10th, 1977, the Sex Pistols got signed to AMM Records, and Vicious got into yet another incident where he smashed the toilet and cut his foot at the record company's office. Lyndon was also cursing out employees, while Jones was getting busy in the ladies' bathroom there. And no surprise to anyone, I'm sure, at that time, they got cut from the contract a few days later, after a friend of Lyndon's threatened to kill a good friend of the AMM's English director at a music club they were at. God, everywhere this band went, they just made tons of friends, didn't they? What little cherubs. <laughs> All right, so it didn't take another record company to pick them up. Virgin Records eventually signed them and wanted to distribute their new single, God Save the Queen. But yet again, trouble rose after packing workers saw the now iconic defaced Queen cover that Jamie Reed created, and they boycotted it. This got resolved, and it eventually was released. This did not, however, stop a lot of record stores from refusing to put the single on their shelves. BBC and every independent radio station refused to play the song as well. The level of protest surrounding it made the song the most, quote, heavily censored record in history, unquote. Wow, that's a feat by itself, if I do say so. Even Lydon went on record for saying, quote, we're the only honest band that's hit the planet in about 2,000 million years, unquote. Oh, that's cool. And again, another incident occurred on June 7th, 1977, when McLaren and the Sex Pistols decided to perform on a private boat down the River Thames passing Westminster Pier and the House of Parliament during Queen Elizabeth's Silver Jubilee Festival. This event was obviously intended to poke fun and mock the crown, and to no one's great surprise, yet again, the cops got on board the boat and they got busted. There's actually video footage of all this, apparently. If you want to look, check on YouTube. I'm sure it's easy to find. Anyway, despite all the censorship, God Save the Queen did remarkably well. It got number two on the UK charts and sold around 150,000 records. Good news aside, being the most despised band of all time then obviously came with its downsides. The members and Jamie Reed were attacked by anti-punk people on multiple occasions. 
Lydon even got cut with a knife by an angry protester. A lot of this rivalry also stemmed from the growing animosity of the Teddy Boys, whom I touched upon a bit already. Man, they should have saved themselves the trouble and just called the band Scandal, because it's just literally a never-ending rap sheet. John Lydon even commented on the hatred surrounding the band by saying, quote, I don't understand it. All I want to do is destroy everything. <laughs> Unquote. That's funny. <laughs> All right. Never mind the bollocks, Here's the Sex Pistols was released on October 28, 1977, and it was originally going to be entitled, quote, God Save Sex Pistols, unquote, but that idea clearly changed. Steve Jones was the one who laid down most of the bass tracks, since Sid Vicious, as already discussed, couldn't play the instrument to save his life. Steve Jones states, and this is funny in a kind of dark way, quote, Sid wanted to come down and play the album, and we tried as hard as possible not to let him anywhere near the studio. Luckily, he had hepatitis at the time, unquote. <laughs> so he's saying it's a good thing he had hepatitis so he couldn't record the album. That's hilarious. Okay, moving on. Supposedly on the song Bodies, Vicious's bass parts are still there, but barely audible. Jones also comments on this as well by saying, quote, He, referring to Vicious, played his farty old bass part, and we just let him do it. When he left, I dubbed another part on, leaving Sid's down low. I think it might be barely audible on the track. Unquote. <laughs> that was funny, too. There was obviously legal issues with the title, because when was there not legal issues with this band? But in all seriousness, Bollocks was considered a profanity, and displaying it was deemed offensive until, and this is kind of interesting, QC John Mortimer got an expert witness to show that the term actually appeared in many places and didn't cause any problems for people. In addition, he showed that in the 19th century, the term actually referred to clergymen because they talked a lot of nonsense, and the word morphed into literally meaning nonsense. So, apparently, they dodged that charge. It's also interesting to note that Steve Jones was the one accredited for titling the album, actually, when the band was having trouble deciding on a name for it. He was noted for saying offhandedly, quote, Oh, f*** it, never mind the bollocks of it all, unquote. And the band did a Never Mind the Bollocks tour in December 1977. On January 3rd, 1978, they embarked on a U.S. tour where they mostly played in the Deep South. As per usual, a lot of the shows were canceled and the band had a hard time getting their visas as a result of all of them having criminal records. This is interesting. McLaren actually admitted that he intentionally picked redneck bars to provoke conflicts for the band, trying to generate publicity, I assume. At least that's my guess. I'm, I'm not entirely sure. Anyway. On this tour, Sid Vicious was a full-on junkie at this point and getting into more dangerous situations than anyone can count. I'll just summarize a few. In San Antonio, Texas, he called the crowd, quote, a bunch of f***ers, unquote, and proceeded to hit an onlooker with his base. At another show, I assume, he attacked a security guard. In Louisiana, he received simulated fellatio on stage and was quoted for saying, quote, that's the kind of girl I like, unquote. In Dallas, he spit blood on another girl, and she got on the stage and then punched him in the face. In another incident, he challenged his bodyguard to a fight and was quoted for saying after being beaten up, quote, I like you. Now we can be friends, unquote. Wow. <laughs> it just never ends with this guy. I mean, literally goes on and on. Anyway, the tour ended on January 14th, 1978 at the Winterland Ballroom in San Francisco. 
John Lydon only sang one song that night and was quoted for saying, quote, you'll get one number and one number only because I'm a lazy bastard, quote. The song he played was a cover by the Stooges called No Fun. He ended the first and last song by saying to the crowd, quote, ah, ha, ha, ever get the feeling you've been cheated? Good night, unquote. Lydon clearly demonstrated that he was fed up with the band. He was also quoted for saying later, quote, I felt cheated and I wasn't going on with it any longer. It was a ridiculous farce. Sid was completely out of his brains, just a waste of space. The whole thing was a joke at that point. Malcolm wouldn't speak to me. He would not discuss anything with me. But then he would turn around and tell Paul and Steve that the tension was all my fault because I wouldn't agree to anything. Unquote. Three days after the last show, or on January 17th, 1978, the band officially broke up. Lydon formally announced it in a newspaper a day later. Jones, Vicious, and Cook would never play again together live after Lydon left. They did, however, create a few more songs. One was a 1969 Frank Sinatra cover, which was sung by Sid Vicious, called My Way. If you want to have some nightmares, watch the music video. It's incredibly messed up. Also, pretty sure the music video got recreated in the 1986 movie Sid and Nancy, directed by Alex Cox. Vicious also covered two songs by Eddie Cochran, a 1959 song entitled Something Else, which was released on February 23, 1979, wink wink, three weeks before a certain big event, which I will discuss shortly. And he also covered Come On Everybody by the already aforementioned artist. Jones and Cook recorded a song named No One Is Innocent with a British criminal by the name of Ronnie Biggs, who did the vocals. This was released on June 30th, 1978. Sid Vicious parted ways with the band and McLaren. He moved to New York City with Nancy, and she acted as his manager since he was trying to turn into a solo act. Now we get to the real dark side of Sid's story. On October 11th, 1979, or 48 days after they moved to New York, Nancy Spudgeon was found with a stab wound in her stomach and pronounced dead in the Chelsea Hotel room that her and Sid just happened to be sharing at that time, exclusively for binging on heroin, of course. Malcolm McLaren was quoted as saying, quote, I can't believe he was involved in such a thing. Sid was set to marry Nancy in New York. He was very close to her and had quite a passionate affair with her, unquote. To no one's great surprise, I'm sure, besides McLaren's, Sid Vicious was arrested and charged with the murder of Nancy Spungen. After all, it was his switchblade that was sticking out of her stomach, apparently. He pleaded that he didn't remember anything as a result of being completely strung out from all the drugs they were doing. Now, if you were thinking his rap sheet for sure would end at this point, think again. While out on bail from Rikers Island, Sid Vicious was apparently arrested again for smashing a beer mug in the face of Patty Smith's brother, Todd Smith. Yeah, I'm inclined to disagree completely with Malcolm McLaren's opinion. It would seem this guy knew how to be very violent, and to think he got this separate assault charge while being out on bail for an already pending murder charge is just jaw-dropping. I mean, if there's ever a time to look squeaky clean, it's, it's then, but whatever. Anyway, it was commonly believed that Sid Vicious killed himself from overdosing on heroin in a Greenwich Village apartment. However, this is not entirely the case. His mother, Anne Beverly, who was also a heroin addict, injected the last dose to Sid, which was definitely enough to kill him, also considering he had just gone through cold turkey while in prison. It's lethal to give a high quantity of dope to someone who had just gone through withdrawal, and Anne Beverly definitely knew this. 
Her motive was not entirely clear, and she died in 1996. But it is widely perceived that she did this as an act of mercy killing for her son. It's also assumed she probably thought there was a good chance Sid would get convicted of Nancy's murder and go back to jail. So, rather than just wait for the verdict, it would seem she decided to spare him of more trauma. Yep, she euthanized her son. Dark and dark, huh? Anyway, Sid Vicious died on February 2nd, 1979. Shortly after this tragic episode, there was a lengthy legal battle between John Lydon and Malcolm McLaren, which was over the rights for the band. The ownership fell back into the band's hands on January 16th, 1986. McLaren was also filming a movie called The Great Rock and Roll Swindle, which was directed by Julian Temple. This whole movie also belonged to the band again after the court's decision. The album for the movie was released by Virgin Records on February 24, 1979, and the movie itself was released on May 15, 1980. The original four members of the Sex Pistols reunited for a six-month international tour named the Filthy Lucor tour in 1996 another documentary which i talked about already a little bit was released in 2000 also directed by julian temple called the filth and the fury same name as the headline of the tabloid magazine which was released after the grundy incident good documentary if you haven't seen it i highly recommend it on november 2006 they were inducted into the rock and roll hall of fame Okay, so my final thoughts on this incredibly zany story about the Sex Pistols. This topic was so dense it was hard to stay on one subject. These legends were the antithesis of mainstream pop culture. Learning about them is like the equivalent of dropping LSD and reading Alice in Wonderland at the same time. Personally, I have nothing but admiration and respect for them, minus some incidents. They showed so much guts by embracing the idea of being different as the new cool. What was perceived as conventionally ugly at that time was beautiful to this group of people, and this literally flipped everything on its head. Not sure if they invented the punk movement, but they certainly made it a household name. They gave the big middle finger to anything that conformed to the status quo and did everything they could to show how anti-establishment they were. These unique individuals were true rebels. Anyway, cool people, this is the end of this episode. I'm going to do my best to post more stuff on a consistent basis, so we'll see how that progresses. If you have any suggestions for a topic you want me to discuss for a future episode, please let me know. If you enjoyed this episode, go to iTunes or Stitcher and leave a five-star review. Also, don't forget to subscribe on Stitcher, iTunes, or your favorite listening app. This is Strange Music Stories. I'm your host, Chris. Until the next time, peace. Peace.